This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 6, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Today, we will be discussing the ongoing Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. We will, uh, we're going to discuss the history of the nation. We're going to discuss the background of the conflict and also how we got to the current situation. So I hope you enjoy this one. This is a very enlightening episode for me, and I must thank Tanner Below for helping with the research on this episode. He reached out over to help, offered to help me research episodes. He knew I was kind of tight on time. I agreed. It all worked out and it's been great. This, uh, his help has saved me at least two or three weeks of research that I would have had to done myself and helped me get this episode out much quicker than I other, otherwise would have gotten it. So, just want to let you know before we go, please support the show by becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash Islamic history. As always, show notes will be available on the website. Just go to IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Burma, B-U-R-M-A. And with that, let's get on with the show. This is season four, episode six, Burma and the Rohingya. The Rohingya Crisis The Rohingya Muslims of Burma are one of the most oppressed and persecuted peoples in the world. They are a million people with no country and no rights. Though most Rohingya were born and raised in predominantly Buddhist Burma, the nation does not want them and does not recognize them. The Rohingya have suffered generations of persecution, oppression, and the denial of basic human rights. They are not recognized as citizens of Burma, and the government considers them illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. This is odd considering Bangladesh did not exist before 1971, and the Rohingya were in Burma long before that. The nation of Burma, also known as Myanmar, is actively trying to make one million people disappear. And Burma's most predominant citizen, Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, seems unwilling or unable to improve the situation. While Buddhist mobs attack Rohingya Muslims and destroy mosques, while the military burns and rapes its way through Rohingya villages, while hundreds of thousands of Rohingya live in dilapidated refugee camps, Aung San Suu Kyi insists there is no crisis. Unbelievable. We thought she is a godmother. She will bring prosperity, peace for everyone, and she has a big heart to treat everybody equally. But Ms. Suu Kyi failed to acknowledge the plight of the Rohingya Muslim minority, who've been described as the most persecuted on earth. The Burmese army have attacked Rohingya villages, burning down buildings, killing and raping as they go. We are going to explore the origins of the Rohingya crisis. 
we will investigate the claims that the Rohingya are illegal immigrants. We will also discover how the situation got so bad. Let's begin by first learning more about the nation in question, Myanmar. Myanmar is a nation in Southeast Asia bordered by Bangladesh, India, Laos, Thailand, and China. Until 1989, it was known as Burma. Many nations still refer to it by this name, including the United States. Both names originate from the name of the largest ethnic group in Burma, the Bamar people. The Bamar are one of over a hundred different ethnic groups recognized by the Burmese government. And this brings us to the Citizenship Act of 1982, which lies at the heart of the Rohingya crisis. The Citizenship Act codified the status and rights of the citizens of Burma. However, critics say the act was just a tool to increase political power for the majority ethnic Bamar people. According to the Citizenship Act, members of ethnic groups that existed in Burma before 1823 are full citizens. The Rohingya are left out of this equation since most of them entered Burma as a result of British colonization, which began in 1823. As a result, the Rohingya Muslims of Burma, like the Palestinians, are a stateless people. They are not wanted in the country of their birth, nor are they wanted anywhere else in the world. These people have just crossed the border. They're in no man's land. They've been driven from their homes in Myanmar. Now they're waiting for permission to enter Bangladesh. The Rohingya are a people that neither country wants. Before the current refugee crisis, it was estimated that over a million Rohingya lived in Burma. However, there are only about 300,000 Rohingya living in Burma these days. Lack of citizenship is one of the major problems the Rohingya face. If they are considered illegal immigrants, it gives the government license to mistreat them. But religious conflict is another factor that contributes to their persecution. Burma is predominantly Buddhist. 90% of the 55 million people there are Buddhists, but Muslims make up the largest religious minority. Almost all Rohingya are Muslim, but not all Muslims in Burma are Rohingya. In fact, Islam was in Burma long before the Rohingya were. Islam in Burma there is evidence of Arab merchants in Burma as early as the 3rd century. By the 9th century, these Arab merchants not only brought goods for trade, they also brought Islam. The Muslim Arabs were able to convert some of the local Burmese to Islam. While Muslims have remained a religious minority in Burma, their numbers have grown consistently. In 1872, there were at least 58,000 Muslims in Burma. By 1911, that number had more than tripled to 178,000. And by the end of World War I, there were over half a million Muslims living in Burma. 
Now, there are well over a million Muslims in Burma, making up almost 4% of the population. Some experts believe there may be even more, as the government has not released census figures since the 1980s. All religious minorities in Burma face some level of discrimination, but Muslims seem to be the favorite target. No doubt, the rapid growth of the Muslim population in Burma has sparked fears among the Buddhist populace. They claim that all of the Muslims are terrorists, but till now, there is not a single proof of it. 96% of the population is uh, scarce for the 4% Muslim. Smani Ni spent 15 years fighting against the military dictatorship and was captured and tortured for six months. He's now a spokesperson for the increasingly fearful Muslim community and is being kept under virtual house arrest. Burma is a nation driven by ethnic and religious identity. Understanding this is critical to understanding the Rohingya crisis. As irrational as it may seem, the Buddhists living in Burma are actually afraid their country will soon be overrun by Muslims. These same Buddhists also claim most of the Muslims in Burma came from Bangladesh and should be sent back there. In fact, most Buddhists in Burma do not even like to use the word Rohingya as that gives them legitimacy. They prefer to call them Bengali. Arakan Historically, the Rohingya have lived in the western coastal Burmese province of Rakhine. This area was once home of the Arakan kingdom and was known as Arakan for most of its history. Rakhine is separated from the rest of the nation by the Arakan Mountains. For centuries, it was a primary trading destination as it provided access into the rest of Burma and from there on into China. Arakan shares a border with the nation we now call Bangladesh. In the 14th century, Arakan was an independent kingdom. The Arakan Mountains provided a buffer from the more powerful Burmese kingdoms of inner Burma. But in 1406, the Burmese kingdom crossed the mountains and invaded Arakan. Arakan reached out to the Sultan of Bengal for help. The Sultan drove out the Burmese invaders and Arakan essentially became a vassal of Bengal. The largest ethnic group in Arakan are the Rakhine people who are mostly Buddhist. But being a vassal of the Muslim Sultan of Bengal allowed Islam to further permeate Arakan. During this period of Bengali influence, the Rakhines absorbed many facets of Islamic culture. The Buddhist Arakan kings adopted the titles of their Muslim overlords, and they would often appoint Muslims to high administrative positions. But this Islamic influence was cut short in 1784 when the Konbung dynasty of Burma finally conquered Arakan for good. Tragedy followed as the Bamar people, the largest ethnic group in Burma, began persecuting the local Rakhines. Thousands of Rakhines fled Arakan for Bengal, which was now under British rule. Thousands of others were forcefully migrated out of Arakan and into central Burma. By the time the British arrived 25 years later, Arakan was nearly empty. Burma shared a border with British India and the British were looking to expand. 
Throughout the 1800s, the British and Burmese kingdoms fought three wars with the British winning each time. The First Anglo-Burmese War concluded in 1824. Burma agreed to cede Arakan to the British as part of the peace deal. The 1982 Citizenship Act is based on this event. The British wanted to make a profit off of Arakan, but the population had been devastated by the Bamar persecution. To resolve this, the British brought in settlers from India, including thousands of workers from Bengal, most of whom were Muslim. Before long, the British had turned Arakan into one of the largest rice producers in the world. Meanwhile, the Konbong dynasty of Burma lost a second war and even more territory to the British. The Burmese desperately needed an ally to help even the odds. In 1885, the Burmese king secretly opened talks with the French government. When the British found out, they again declared war on Burma. The British won, forced the Burmese king to abdicate, and absorbed Burma into British East India. It is during this period of British rule that most of the people we call Rohingya migrated into Burma, eventually settling in Arakan. Buddhists versus Muslims Tensions between Buddhists and Muslims began to rise during British rule. These tensions were further stoked by Buddhist persecution in India and competition for jobs. In 1930, during the height of the Great Depression, hundreds of Indian laborers in Yangon, the capital of Burma, went on strike to protest poor working conditions. The British responded by hiring local Burmese workers to replace them. The Indians then decided to go back to work, and the British promptly fired all the Burmese they just hired. The Burmese blamed the Indians, and riots broke out, leading to the death of over 200 Indians. In 1938, Burmese newspapers published pictures of Buddhist monks who had been beaten by Indian police officers. This led to more riots, and another 200 Muslims were killed, and dozens of mosques were destroyed. By this time, the Burmese considered Muslims and Indians to be one and the same. The situation grew worse when World War II began and Britain found itself at war with the Japanese Empire. In 1942, the Japanese Imperial Army prepared to invade and the people of Burma had to choose sides. The Bamar people, the dominant ethnic group in Burma, sided with Japan while the Indian Muslims sided with Britain. Early in the war, the British were forced to retreat out of Arakan and across the border into Bengal. As they left, they armed the Muslims of Arakan, hoping they'd hold off the Japanese. The fighting between the British-backed Muslims and the combined Burmese and Japanese forces was brutal. Both sides committed atrocities, and by the time the Japanese were defeated, 30,000 Buddhists and 40,000 Muslims were dead. Eventually, the Allies prevailed and the Japanese Empire was defeated. But the war also devastated Britain, who would have to begin divesting itself of its global empire. The Muslims of Burma expected to be rewarded for their loyalty and hoped the British would give them their own country. For the Muslims of Arakan, an independent Burma was bad news. 
A Burmese nation would surely be controlled by the Buddhist Bamar, whom they had fought against during the war. However, the British refused to grant them an autonomous region. Then Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, refused their request to annex Arakan. The Muslims of Burma would have to accept living under Buddhist rule. Independence and Civil War When Burma became an independent nation in 1948, some of the Muslim fears were realized. The new government fired all Rohingya civil servants and replaced them with ethnic Bamar. Furthermore, the Rohingya were denied citizenship and barred from most government services. Still demanding an autonomous Muslim region, some of the Rohingya formed militant groups and began an insurgency. The northern parts of Arakan, now known as Rakhine province, were predominantly Muslim. The insurgents were able to draw support and sympathy from the local populace and put up a strong fight. In time, the insurgency took on a religious tone and the Rohingya fighters started calling themselves Mujahideen. The Burmese government was also busy fighting insurgencies against various other rebel groups. However, by 1949, the government was winning the fight. The Mujahideen, though backed by Pakistan, were mostly relegated to the jungles of Arakan. In 1950, the Burmese government asked Pakistan to stop supporting the rebels. Pakistan agreed to stop supporting the rebels and, in exchange, Burma agreed to stop persecuting their Muslim citizens. Without Pakistani support, the Mujahideen insurgency slowly petered out. In 1957, several rebel groups surrendered to the government and by 1960, the insurgency was over. The victory proved the Burmese military's capability and strength. The Burmese government, however, was not doing so well. Years of warfare, corruption, and ethnic favoritism had rendered the government weak and ineffective. With public confidence waning, General Ney Nguyen staged a coup and overthrew the civilian government. The military established a one-party system and enacted several reforms that improved the lives of Burma's peasants and farmers. But the military government also actively persecuted certain groups, including ethnic Chinese, Muslims, and the Rohingya. And then came the Pakistani Civil War. The Islamic Republic of Pakistan was made up of two land masses known as East Pakistan and West Pakistan. The two Pakistans were separated by almost a thousand miles of Indian territory. The majority of the people in East Pakistan were Bengali, while the majority in West Pakistan were Punjabi and Pashtun. This created a cultural and social rift between East and West, and some Bengalis began demanding independence. In 1970, the Pakistani government launched Operation Searchlight to root out and neutralize the Bengali separatist movements in East Pakistan. The military operation soon devolved into a massacre leading to the deaths of over 4,000 Bengalis. 
Operation Searchlight galvanized the Bengalis to resist the government even more, and this led to an all-out war between the Pakistani government and Bengali separatists. India provided financial and military support to the Bengali separatists, but did not enter the war until Pakistan attacked some of its air bases. Pakistan could not fight both India and the separatists and eventually surrendered. Pakistan agreed to recognize East Pakistan's independence, which became the People's Republic of Bangladesh. The war lasted about nine months and resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians. This destruction led to millions of Bangladeshi refugees, which concerned the military government of Burma. In response, Burma launched Operation Dragon King in 1978. The stated purpose was to root out illegal immigrants in preparation for a national census. But Burma believed the new Bangladeshi government was too weak to secure its border. The Burmese government swept through Rakhine province rounding up Rohingya villagers. Allegations of mass rape and murder followed and over 200,000 Rohingya fled to Bangladesh. The Burmese military said this proved they were illegal immigrants. Bangladesh did not want hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees either. They brokered a deal with Burma allowing the refugees to return, most of whom resettled in Rakhine province. Four years later, the Burmese Citizenship Act passed, allowing the government to deny citizenship to the Rohingya people. Aung San Suu Kyi By the late 1980s, Burma was in serious trouble. The government was heavily in debt and had been run by the same man, General Ne Win, since 1962. Very little had changed regarding freedom of speech or a democratic voting process. In September 1987, the government tampered with the currency hoping to stem the rising debt. In doing so, they also wiped out the life savings of thousands of people, leading to riots and demonstrations. At first, these demonstrations were spearheaded by students whose parents had been saving up to send them to university. But before long, the protests spread to include the Buddhist religious establishment and the middle class. The demonstrations carried on throughout the end of 1987 and into 1988. By June 1988, the entire country was in a state of constant unrest. The government tried to forcefully quell the protests leading to the deaths of hundreds of students, protesters, and police. It was clear the people had lost faith in General Ne Win, who resigned in July 1988. But his hand-picked successor was equally disliked, and the protests continued. The protesters planned a massive nationwide demonstration for August 8, 1988. The number 8 is special in Buddhist culture, and the demonstration was called the 8888 movement. The government found out about the planned protest and deployed security forces throughout the nation with orders to shoot to kill if provoked. Unsurprisingly, the protests soon turned violent. The military opened fire on the protesters who fought right back. The violence continued to escalate as the nation was thrown into chaos. The protesters held huge rallies throughout the nation, hoping to galvanize the people and attract the attention of the international media. 
At one of these rallies, a young woman named Aung San Suu Kyi gave a speech before nearly half a million people. As the daughter of one of Burma's founders, Aung San Suu Kyi held a special place in the hearts of the Burmese people. After giving that speech, she became the de facto leader of Burma's pro-democracy movement. However, the government was winning. By September 1988, the military had subdued most of the country. The military leaders canceled the constitution, imposed martial law, and began a brutal crackdown. Aung San Suu Kyi appealed to the international community for help, and while these pleas helped make her an international figure, they did little to stop the government. By October 1988, the 888 movement had been snuffed out and over 10,000 people were dead. In 1990, the military allowed elections in Burma for the first time in 30 years. Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy won 392 of the 492 parliamentary seats, which would have made her the prime minister. But the military junta refused to give up power. They declared the election corrupt and annulled the results. The military tightened control over the nation and put Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest. She would remain there for most of the next 21 years. While under house arrest, Aung San Suu Kyi publicly announced her intention to bring political change to Burma. Her insistence on using peaceful means in the process earned her the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. Since she was still confined to her home, her children had to accept it on her behalf. Aung San Suu Kyi was now an international hero. She had joined the ranks of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Mother Teresa. By the late 2000s, the entire world was on her side. ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, called for her release with Malaysia threatening to expel Burma if it did not comply. In 2007, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to award her the Congressional Gold Medal. Also in 2007, the Canadian Parliament awarded her with honorary citizenship. In 2008, the United Nations passed a resolution demanding her release. In 2009, U.S. President Barack Obama also called for her release. Finally, in November 2010, the Burmese government caved under the pressure and Aung San Suu Kyi was allowed to leave her home. With her release, Aung San Suu Kyi's popularity rose even higher. In 2011, French film company Europa Corp released The Lady, a biopic about her life. The film was directed by Luc Besson and starred Michelle Yeoh as Aung San Suu Kyi. All of this culminated with Aung San Suu Kyi winning a parliamentary seat in the 2012 elections. This time, the military did not intervene and it seemed her hopes for a democratic Myanmar had finally been realized. The Rohingya Crisis Worsens 
Throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s, while Aung San Suu Kyi was confined to her home, the Rohingya were being forced out of theirs. We are seeing what we call the slow-burning genocide that is unfolding with characteristic spikes of killings with pl- and then followed by plateaus of you know, carefully designed and structured uh, destruction of Rohingya as an ethnic, religious, and national group. Not long after annulling the 1990 elections, the military deployed troops to Rakhine province. A series of human rights violations followed, including allegations of rape, forced labor, and destruction of mosques. 250,000 Rohingya fled across the border, forcing the Bangladeshi government to deploy its own military. Burma agreed to allow those refugees who could prove their citizenship to return to their homes. But since most of the refugees were Rohingya and Burma did not recognize them as citizens, they rejected most of them. In June 2012, just a month after Aung San Suu Kyi won her seat in parliament, a group of Rohingya men allegedly raped and killed a Buddhist woman in Rakhine. Buddhists in Rakhine violently retaliated, leading to the death of at least 10 Muslims. A large group of Muslims protested the deaths after Friday prayers that week. The police showed up, tensions rose, shots were fired, and another dozen Muslims were killed. The riots continued to spread with Muslims and Buddhists attacking and burning down each other's homes. The government declared a state of emergency in Rakhine, allowing the military to take over administration of the region. The riots resulted in over 80 deaths, 90,000 displaced people, and 2,500 homes destroyed. Once again, the Rohingya tried to flee across the border into Bangladesh. But this time, the Bangladeshi military was prepared and turned most of them away. Aung San Suu Kyi was on a European tour when the riots broke out. When she was asked if the Rohingya were Burmese, she replied, I don't know. The situation continued to worsen for the Rohingya. In October 2012, fighting broke out again between Muslims and Buddhists, leading to another 100,000 displaced people and thousands of destroyed homes. By 2015, after years of violence and persecution, the Rohingya were fleeing Burma in droves. They headed for Bangladesh, Malaysia, Indonesia, and India. They often set sail in ramshackle, overcrowded boats, only to be turned away by the nation's Coast Guard or Navy. Naturally, this led to several boats capsizing with hundreds drowning or being stranded at sea with nowhere to go. The violence ticked up another notch in 2016 when ARSA insurgents began attacking Burmese military outposts. ARSA, or Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, is a Rohingya Islamic insurgent group. Beginning in 2013 under the name Harakatul Yaqeen, they're led by Ataullah Abu Ammar, a Rohingya Muslim. Al Yaqeen, or Faith Movement. And in this exclusive interview obtained by CNN, its leader claims to be fighting on behalf of Myanmar's long-oppressed Rohingya Muslim minority. 
We have been appealing to the world to help us regain our rights. Nothing happened. Therefore, now we have to deal with the government directly. We will continue to attack the oppressor, the government, until our citizenship is reinstated. Abu Ammar's parents were born in Burma but fled to Pakistan in the 1960s to escape Buddhist persecution. Abu Ammar was born in Pakistan and educated in Saudi Arabia. Not surprisingly, several of Arsa's leaders are also Saudi citizens. On October 9, 2016, Arsa attacked three Burmese border posts, killing nine officers and making off with an assortment of weapons and munitions. Two days later, Arsa killed four Burmese soldiers in another surprise attack. In August 2017, Arsa launched a series of coordinated attacks against various government targets. They struck 24 police posts and an army base, killing one soldier, an immigration officer, and 10 policemen. The government claimed 59 Arsa insurgents were killed in the attacks. That same month, the Burmese government labeled Arsa a terrorist organization, claiming they received financial and military support from foreign Islamist groups. When Arsa offered a ceasefire, the government rejected it, stating they do not negotiate with terrorists. Arsa denies the terrorist label, stating they do not attack civilians and only target the Burmese military. The Burmese government did not take these attacks lying down. Every time Arsa attacked, the government responded with clearance operations meant to flush out Rohingya insurgents. The United Nations and independent organizations have accused the military of using heavy-handed tactics to fight the insurgency. These tactics included extrajudicial killings, mass rapes, and the destruction of homes. As of October 2017, Reuters and the United Nations estimated at least 2,000 Rohingya have been killed during these clearance operations. Refugees arriving in Bangladesh reported tales of rape and murder by both the military and Buddhist mobs. By September 2017, Bangladesh reported that they were near the breaking point having taken in over 430,000 Burmese refugees. The Bangladeshi government has announced plans to build housing for the refugees and begin an immunization program. However, they stress the need for a permanent solution. The International Community Burma has received heavy criticism for their handling of the Rohingya crisis. In September 2017, Pope Francis condemned the attacks against the Muslim Rohingya. Amnesty International also accused the government of mining the border with Bangladesh. In October 2017, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees released a report detailing Burma's systematic process to drive out the Rohingya. The report accused the military of employing at least six tactics to achieve this goal. 1. Arbitrarily detaining and arresting Rohingya men between the ages of 15 and 40. 2. Arbitrarily detaining and arresting Rohingya political, cultural, and religious figures. 3. Denying Rohingya access to food, medicine, and other necessities. 4. 
driving out Rohingya through repeated acts of humiliation and violence. 5. Inciting sectarian hatred that leads to violence and killing. 6. Instilling fear and trauma in the Rohingya through acts of brutality, including torture, rape, and murder. In August 2018, the UN accused Burma's military of mass killings and rape with a genocidal intent. With a heavy heart and deep sadness, we have drawn conclusions on the basis of the facts that we never expected would be as grave as they are. What we have found are not only the most serious human rights violations, but crimes of the highest order under international law. That was soon followed by an announcement by the International Criminal Court stating they would begin a preliminary investigation into the Rohingya crisis. In September 2018, the Canadian Parliament adopted a motion officially labeling the Rohingya crisis a genocide. Aung San Suu Kyi has also received her fair share of criticism. In 2016, she was selected by the president to be the nation's first ever state councillor of Myanmar. This position was created specifically for her as she was constitutionally barred from running for president. Many of the Rohingya hoped that things might change with her rise to power. As a proponent of human rights, it seemed obvious that she would at least speak out against their suffering. However, despite her high profile and authority, she appears unwilling or unable to help the Rohingya. In July 2017, a UN envoy to Burma accused her of behaving like the military government she fought against for so many years. In September 2017, fellow Nobel laureates Bishop Desmond Tutu and Malala Yousafzai demanded she do more to stop the Rohingya massacre. That same month, Aung San Suu Kyi chose to skip a UN General Assembly meeting. Many believe she did so to avoid criticism about the Rohingya crisis. In October 2017, Amnesty International accused her of burying her head in the sand about the crisis. And in September 2018, just a few days after declaring the crisis a genocide, the Canadian Parliament stripped away her honorary citizenship. Do you ever worry that you will be remembered as the champion of human rights who failed to stand up to ethnic cleansing in her own country? No, because I don't think there's ethnic cleansing going on. I think ethnic cleansing is too strong a, an expression to use for what's happening. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. I feel like you've already lost the argument when you're saying, hey, we haven't killed enough people yet for it to be called ethnic cleansing. Yeah, think of this as more of a light ethnic dusting. Come on, huh? Ending the crisis. As it stands now, there are still hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Burma and Bangladesh are working on a repatriation deal, but many refugees have stated they refuse to return unless they're granted citizenship. The refugee camps are dangerous and squalid with poor sanitation and infrastructure. 
The refugees depend on international aid for food and live on muddy hills that are in danger of landslides during monsoon season. It is very likely that Bangladesh and Burma will indeed work out a deal and the current situation will settle down. However, as we have seen, it will eventually flare up again if steps are not taken by the Burmese government. The simplest solution is that the government must change their position regarding Rohingya citizenship. Even some form of ethnically biased second-class citizenship is better than the current situation. ARSA and other Muslim insurgent groups should also reconsider their tactics. While ARSA claims to only attack military targets, civilian casualties are inevitable. These actions help legitimize government brutality and distract from the actual victims. Aung San Suu Kyi can also do more to speak out against the violence and acknowledge the problem. After all, she is a national hero and an international figure with enormous influence. Some have cautioned against too much international pressure as Burma is just coming out from under military rule. Others have said her government position is symbolic and she does not wield any true political power. While this may be true, lack of political power never stopped her from speaking out against oppression when she was under house arrest for nearly 21 years. There is no reason it should stop her now. All right, I hope you found that beneficial, useful, entertaining, and engaging. Now, the Rohingya crisis, I've had heard about it for a long time, but I really didn't understand it. I knew that Muslims were being persecuted in Myanmar, or formerly known as Burma, but I didn't really know anything about it. So I'm hoping that many other people, I'm suspecting at least, that many other people were in a similar situation where you didn't really understand this. So hopefully now this crisis enlightens you and helps you, well, this podcast, I I should say, enlightens you about this crisis. And if you think that there are other people who might also benefit from learning more and knowing more about the Rohingya situation, please share this episode with them. I think a lot more people need to understand this, especially Muslims, because we we know about it. I'm Muslim and I knew about this crisis, but I didn't really understand it. And so I'm hoping that this episode helps at least spread some more awareness about the crisis that's going on in Burma these days. Now, I did have help with this, uh, with the research for this episode. Thank you once again to Tanner below, as I mentioned at the top of the episode. However, I did have to do some of my own research as well to uh, help fill out the story. And as I was doing my research, I came across a lot of negative commentary regarding the Muslims in Burma. Um, it's particularly on YouTube. And I know we shouldn't take YouTube comments too seriously because YouTube comments are the worst. But still, at least at the very least, these comments have given me a, a, a perspective on how the Buddhist Burmese feel about this because they often comment on the situation. And many of them are justifying, many people, both uh Burmese, uh, native Burmese or Buddhists who live in Burma and people from outside that country, many people are stating, basically saying things that uh, 
problems follow Muslims wherever they go. Basically saying that everywhere Muslims are, there's problems. Well, first of all, that's not true because most of the Muslim world is at peace. There are some areas, of course, with some significant violence and some serious problems. Uh, for, for instance, of course, Burma, as well as there's problems in Pakistan and Afghanistan, Iraq, also uh, Yemen, Syria, Libya. But there's still a good, uh, another good almost 50 countries where you don't have these problems. And there are many countries around the world where Muslims are, maybe not the majority, but, but make up a large population, large percentage, where once again, there are little, if any, problems. problems. So please, I, I guess I just reminded to myself and to you, let's be careful of the stereotypes that people try to portray about Muslims and understand that a lot of these things are really blown out of proportion. And sometimes the fact that bad things are committed by Muslims, sometimes I think that leads to these incidents being blown out of proportion. This is simply fa- the simple fact that Muslims were involved basically attracts attention to a story that otherwise may not have warranted as much attention. And while there have certainly been uh, instances of Muslims persecuting minority groups around the world in the past, at this time, I'm not aware of any situation, any country, any Muslim country that is actively persecuting a religious minority. Let me know if I'm missing out on something, but there are Buddhist minorities in Malaysia, Indonesia, and Bangladesh, and there are very few reports of systematic government persecution. But there are reports of Muslims being persecuted by Buddhists in Burma, and also Muslims being persecuted by atheists slash Buddhists in China, and there are other places as well. But these are the two prominent ones. So just want to keep that in mind and remind you to sometimes look through the hype. And I guess a reminder for myself as well. So we're going to uh, wrap up, wrap this up. I just wanted to um, give you a few of my comments. We have a few more episodes left for this uh, season, inshallah, and I hope you um, stay tuned for them. I know it takes me a while to put these episodes out, but that's because I do try to put out quality over quantity. If you missed any of the more any of the more recent episodes or any episodes at all, I strongly suggest you check out the um, show notes page for this episode, which will be islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Burma. When you go over there, you can connect with various um, different social media platforms that the Islamic History Podcast is on. You can also support the show. Uh, do We do require and depend on your support for the show. It helps pay for the uh, books I use to research. also helps pay for the hosting of the files and the and the um, the website and all this other stuff. Is, it helps with the show. So please uh, support the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash Islamic History. So you know what you get if you do a $1 uh, monthly subscription, then you get all of the old episodes, the first, uh, what I call season zero and season one, you get those. If you do $4 and up, uh, you get access to those archived episodes as well as Islamic History Exclusive, which is a podcast that is currently going over the prophet's life. So right now we are, I believe uh, we just wrapped up episode 24, episode 25 should be coming out the same, about the same time you're getting this episode. And this is basically going on, going over Prophet Muhammad Wasallam's life. So to show you what you're missing, if you're not part of it, and yes, I am blatantly 
<laughs> encouraging you to become a supporter of the show. We'll, we will include a short clip after this show um, about from one of these um, exclusive episodes. Uh, this episode that this clip is going to come from an episode that is about the Battle of the Trench, Ghazwatul Khandaq, which took place in the fifth year of the Hijra in Islamic history. One of the heroes of the Battle of the Trench was a companion named Salman al-Farisi. And during the episode, I discussed his life. And so this clip is going to be a discussion about Salman al-Farisi's life. Just letting you know what you're missing by not taking part in this um, in Islamic History exclusive. So once again, if you have the inclination, please support the show. I thank all of you who are currently supporting the show. I know there are many of you out there, and I have more good stuff for you guys coming up. For those of you who are supporters of the show, people who support the show, you never miss an episode. A new episode every week. That's my that's my commitment. So if you want to hear Islamic history on a regular basis, I, I suggest you become part of that show. And I got more, more of them coming out in the future. I don't want to give away too much, too much just yet. But for those of you who support the show, you're going to get a new episode every week, inshallah. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, hope you enjoy the show. And until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And so let's discuss this man, Salman al-Farisi, just a little bit. I'm going to go to a little bit about his life. Salman al-Farisi was from the city of Isfahan, which is in modern day uh, central Iran. And like most Persians, when he was born, he practiced the Zoroastrian religion. And this was a religion that essentially worships fire. I won't get into all the details about it, but it essentially worships fire. And Salman was actually very devoted to his faith. He was a very devoted practitioner of Zoroastrianism. And he be, he rose to the position of uh, keeper of the flame, which presumably was a pretty high position in uh, the Zoroaster faith. But at some point in time, he uh, came by a church in Iran. Well, at this time it's Persia. He came across a church and he uh, liked what he saw inside the church. And so he converted to Christianity. And to further learn more about Christianity, he decided to move to Syria. While there were Christians in Persia, the state religion and the primary religion there was Zoroastrianism, and he wasn't going to learn much about Christianity while in Persia. So he decided to go to the lands where the uh, Christians were the dominant group. And so that brought him to uh, Syria. And when he arrived in Syria, he became just as devoted to learning Christianity as he had been about learning and studying Zoroastrianism. And so he traveled throughout Syria to several different cities, studying under one teacher after another, learning as much as he could about Christian doctrine and Christian religion. And he started to uh, didn't necessarily move up in the ranks of Christianity because they have a Moving up in the ranks and uh, that system wasn't necessarily easy, but he did begin to acquire a lot of uh, knowledge about the Christian faith. And it was finally his last teacher, his last Christian teacher had told him, his Christian teacher was nearing death, as a matter of fact. His teacher told him that there was still one more final prophet to come. And he, it was around the time, I guess he has used the signs of uh, astrology or whatever, uh, he had learned that this last prophet was going to come and he encouraged Salman to go find this final prophet. 
And so he gave Salman some clues as to how he would know this was truly the final prophet. He told him that, uh, his teacher told Salman that the prophet would appear in Arabia in a swampy land with many palm trees. He also said that the, this prophet would not accept charity for himself, but he would give it to others. And he would, however, accept gifts. And also, finally, that this prophet had a seal of prophethood, a birthmark in between his shoulder blades that would um, automatically show that he was the actual prophet. So Salman was excited, but he was far away. He was way off in Syria. And what we now uh, call um, is the de- de- it is now the demilitarized zone on the border between modern day Republic of Syria and the modern day state of Israel between those two uh, nations where he was studying at this time. So he wanted to get down to Arabia, but that was not an easy thing to do. So he waited, he waited around in Syria until finally a group of Arab merchants came through and he asked to travel with the Arabs back to Medina. I'm sorry, back to Arabia, not just straight to Medina, back to Arabia. And the Arab merchants agreed and he went on down with them into Arabia. However, these Arab merchants betrayed him and they sold him to a Jewish man in a town about 175 miles north of Medina. And so um, Salman was now a slave. And so he can, he worked for this um, Jewish uh, man uh, for a while until he was sold to another Jewish man from the uh, tribe of Banu Koreda, uh, the same tribe we were discussing earlier. And so now this new Jewish master of him, of his, brought him down into Medina. But at this time, of course, it was known as Yathrib. And so when Salman arrived in Yathrib and he saw the palm trees of Yathrib, he knew that he was in the right spot. And so at the time that Salman arrived in Yathrib, the Prophet ﷺ was still preaching in Mecca. However, Salman did not hear anything, hear anything about him because he was a slave, basically, and his, he was being worked to the bone by his master. However, one day while he was working, he overheard his master talking about um, a group of people in Medina who had pledged allegiance to this prophet in Mecca and had actually gone out to meet him. So this is an indication that Salman first heard about the prophet when the prophet was making his hijrah, making his migration with Abu Bakr to Medina. This is the first time that Salman hears about it. But once he hears it, he immediately knows that this is the person that his teacher back in Syria was telling him about. And so Salman wanted to, of course, test to see if this man Muhammad really was the prophet that his teacher had foretold. And remember, his teacher had given him certain signs to look for. So later that evening, after his work was done, Salman al-Farisi, he snuck away and brought some food as charity to the prophet. The prophet has, had just arrived. He was just a little bit outside of Medina in what, we, what is now Masjid al-Quba, uh, what would become Masjid al-Quba later on. So he went out, out to um, Masjid al-Quba, wasn't a Masjid yet, but it would eventually become there. Went out to Quba to meet the prophet. And he offered this food to the prophet as charity. So the prophet accepted the food, but then he gave it to his companions, but did not eat any of it. This was the first sign that his teacher had, was really the second sign. The first sign was being in the swampy land with palm trees. He was already there in Yathrib. The second sign was that the prophet would uh, not eat charity, but he would give it to others. And so when he saw the when he saw Prophet Muhammad وسلم, give away the food to his companions, that uh, helped to confirm Salman's suspicions that this really was the prophet. 
But he wasn't sure yet, and so he waited a few days, and then he gave the prophet a gift of food. He said the last one was charity. He told the prophet, this paraphrase, and he told the prophet that the last one I gave you was charity, but this is a gift from me to you. And this time, the prophet did eat it. He invited his companions along too, but he did eat as well. So now this was the third sign for Salman, because remember at first, he, um, the, his teacher had told him that the uh, prophet that was to come, he would not eat from charity, but he would eat a gift if you gave it to him. And that was uh, something that Salman witnessed. And so now he was even more convinced, but he still wanted to see the seal of the prophet. He still wanted to see this birthmark to see if the prophet carried the seal. And so a few days after that, he joined the prophet while they were in a funeral procession. And the prophet seemed to have been wearing like a loose cloak around his shoulders. And Salman kept trying to strain his neck, trying to see if this if the cloak was slip low enough to see the mark between the prophet's shoulder blades. And the prophet saw Salman trying to see it. And so he knew what Salman was trying to see. And so the prophet took off the cloak and showed Salman his back. And with that, Salman was convinced and he immediately converted to Islam. But even though Salman had become Muslim, he was still a slave. And he was not able to just immediately go and join Prophet Muhammad Wasallam just yet. And so for this reason, because he was still a slave, Salman al-Farisi missed out on both the battles of Badr and the battle of Ahud. His master just wouldn't let him go. Finally, Salman, he asked his master what would be the price for his freedom. His master told him uh, 30 palm trees and 40 okia of gold. I try my best to estimate what, uh, what an okia is, and I estimate that 40 okia of gold, and my calculation may be wrong, but I believe 40 okia gold is about 700 grams of gold. So, you know, calculate as you will if you want to. You can do your own research if you think you may have something better, but Allah knows best. So Salman, he told the prophet what his master would need in order to set him free. So the prophet, he didn't have the gold just yet, but he immediately went to his companions and started asking them to donate palm tree shoots in order to help uh, Salman buy his freedom. And so the companions began to donate palm trees. Everyone couldn't give um, 30 palm trees right then and there, but altogether they were able to collect 30 palm tree shoots that Salman could collect to give to his master. And then later on, um, a lump of gold came in from one of the expeditions. The Muslims were still going out there fighting and stuff, and they brought back some um, some gold, a lump of gold, as part of the booty of war. And so the Prophet Sallallahu he gave this gold to Salman and told him to wait to see if it would be enough, and if it would be enough. And sure enough, it was ex exactly the 700 grams of gold that his master had wanted, and so between the 30 trees that the companions had donated and the lump of gold from the expedition, Salman was finally able to purchase his freedom and he joined the Prophet ﷺ just a little bit before the events of uh, the Battle of the Trench.